Well, good morning, Harvest. Great time of worship, a great new song, Christ Be Magnified. Um, I know that you were blessed by that. I was blessed by that, and it's good to be back together with you this morning. I know that if you read uh, the EB on Friday, you were expecting Jordan here this morning and a message from the book of uh, Philippians. And as things turned out this week, I was supposed to be on vacation last week. And just as things turned out, I didn't take a vacation week and uh, added in this Sunday and um, really was feeling burdened to bring this message on uh, Hebrews ten twenty five, which is a verse that I've been you know, I've been popping it into different communications to you over the last several weeks and, and just kind of throwing it out there. But I have this message from, I think it's eight years ago uh, when we did the Hebrew series. Uh, and, and I thought it would be good to bring this out, spend some time looking at Hebrews 10.25 uh, together, getting a fuller picture of what that verse really means uh, for us. Now, of course, apologies to those of you who were expecting to be here in person um, we obviously had to make a change really at the last minute yesterday for a bunch of reasons. And uh, this week, we are going to be communicating with you a little bit more thoroughly about that decision and what that means for us uh, going forward. I have to tell you, last week, it was amazing to be able to speak to people in the room again, uh, rather than just looking at the camera and uh, looking at you at home. Uh, but we want to make the best decision, the thing that's, that's really going to bless our church, bless our staff, bless our volunteers in the best way possible. And, um, and we're going to look to do that when the time is right for that to happen. But anyways, watch for that communication uh, this week. So we are going to be in God's Word now, and I hope you have your Bibles. And if you have um, uh, sourced the uh, sermon notes uh, from hbc.info, you'll know that we're in Hebrews chapter uh, 10. And um, let's start with this. What are you filled with? Here's a great question. What are you filled with? Now, I'm not talking about your body. Obviously, your body is filled with blood and, and bones and guts. And I understand that mostly our body is filled with water. Um, I'm not really thinking about our bodies. I'm thinking more about our heart, our mind, our spirit. Or we could say our soul. What is your soul filled with? What is, what is filling the essence of who you are as a person? What's in that? You see, whatever is in there, that's the thing that's going to give you the confidence you need to face whatever you're going to face in life. Whatever challenges come your way, whatever setbacks, even even the victories and successes that you have, whatever's inside of you, that's going to inform your responses. And there are a lot of people filling themselves with things that are not going to give them the confidence to face their challenges. And what we should be filled with, first and foremost, we're going to see in today's passage, is faith. We should be filled with faith and not faith in just anything, not faith in myself like I believe in myself, not faith in another person, not faith even in some religion, but faith in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the preacher who gave us the book of Hebrews, and you may recall from our study all those years ago, that the book of Hebrews is a sermon transcript. If you read it front to back, it'll take you about 50 minutes to read it. It's a single sermon that's laid out for us. And the preacher says here, 
um, he lays out really the necessity of faith in chapter 11, verse 6, a little bit after our passage, where he says, without faith, without faith, listen now, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that faith we see in today's passage produces this unwavering confidence. No matter what comes our way. And our lives, uh, you know, I know, our lives have been severely disrupted over the past several months. But this passage brings us back to what's most essential. This life of faith. And so let's uh, turn to the passage. It's Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And uh, verse 25, of course, is that key verse that we've been looking at. But let's uh, look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, since all of those things are true, verse 27, uh, to, verse 22, sorry, let us draw near with a true heart in fullest assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we uh, commit this time to you. We, as always, need a word from you. Father, the last seven days uh, for many of us have been an onslaught, have added to our burden. And Father, we need a word from you to encourage us that we can have an unwavering confidence in you. Father, for some, last week was fine, but the week ahead or the days ahead are going to be challenging. And we need to be reminded and prepared by having an unwavering confidence in you. So God, give us that assurance today. Work deeply in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you're saying amen at your end, and uh, here we are uh, looking at this uh, point in our notes, only faith in Christ fills you with an unwavering confidence. Let's look at this first, um, that rest, that confidence rests on all that he, all that Jesus has done for you. Those first uh, few verses, we have a review of what the preacher had said really in the previous section where he was succinctly reviewing and rehearsing the basics of how it is that we have the privilege. How do we have the privilege as sons and daughters of the king, as, as the children of God, to actually enter into the throne room and speak to the Lord, to approach him and to be in relationship with him? Our God. How does that actually happen? And he says here that it comes to us, verse 19, by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross. That's the only reason why we have any access at all to God. And then verse 20, he says, This is the new and living way that fulfilled for them, because he's talking to Hebrew people, he's talking to them about the Old Testament law and how it was all fulfilled. This is the new and living way 
that fulfilled the ceremonial law. No more need for a temple. No more need for sacrifices. No more need for all the festivals and the rituals. The sacrificial system, the old way, is gone. The final, once and for all, sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient now. It fulfilled all things. It was, in fact, the giving of his flesh, we see, that allows us, as chapter 10 actually opened in verse 1, this is what allows us, here's the phrase, it allows us to draw near to God. And since we have a great priest, notice what it says there, we have a great priest, that's Jesus, who mediates for us, who intercedes for us, who advocates for us. He does all of this in his role as a priest. If you think of priests today, that's what they do. They are the mediator or the advocate or the the person who intercedes for a sinner toward God. They stand between God and the sinner. Well, Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled all aspects of the ceremonial law. So now there's no more need for us to have priests. In fact, we're said to be priests ourselves. We now have full access to draw near to God personally. You, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a priest. You have full access to God. The only advocate you need, the only intercessor, the only intermediary that you need is Jesus Christ. He is our great priest. And when you have him as your priest, you have an unwavering confidence as a child of God. Because It all rests on him. The full weight of all of this, the full weight of our access rests on him. And I I think about that in these days and how I, I feel this burden and I feel this weight on my shoulder and I'm sure you feel the same way. And, and, and if, if I'm taking any part of this burden of my sin on myself, and then, and then any weight of the burden of life and the effects of sin in this world, if I'm taking any of that on myself, that's, that's not only foolish, but it's absolutely ineffective for actually managing the crisis I'm in. The Apostle Peter wrote this in his first letter, 1 Peter 5, 7. He said, cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I could have used that verse this week. Now, Peter wrote that in his letter, but he would have heard long ago, he could have heard, he would have heard Jesus say this, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. These are really familiar verses. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, now just for a moment, just take that in. Just take that in. That Jesus Christ is able to take your burden and lay it on his own shoulders, you can put it there, and just let him carry it. Now, if, if that's true, if, if we can actually do that with respect to the sin issues in our lives, 
And then, as a consequence, because we're in relationship with him, with any other cares and issues in our lives, and lay that on him. Now, just think about it. How would the last seven days have changed for you? How would they have been different if you had actually put your cares on Jesus rather than what you did, you carried them around with you all week long? See, he's willing to bear the load. And by faith, again, the one thing that truly pleases God, Hebrews eleven six. okay? The one thing that pleases God is faith. And by faith, we then have this unwavering confidence because of what he has done, because of what he is doing in an ongoing way for us. And not at all on what we have done for ourselves or what we can do for ourselves. And all that is required, the only thing that is required according to the text is faith. Just to believe in him. It's no more complicated than that. And when you do, you're going to be filled with his unwavering confidence. And then he says three times this phrase comes, verses 22, 23, and 24. Three times he says, let us, let us, let us. In light of this truth about Jesus, then do this, do this, do this. Let these three things be true of you. These are three essential traits that we're to have. These are descriptors of the person who is able to draw near to God. And and the question we're going to ask is, are these true of me? Are these true of you? First, this. Allowing you to draw near without reservation, having, first of all, a sincere heart. Do you have a sincere heart? Verse 22 says that you have a true heart. A true heart reflects what's inside, the content of your life. So what's in there? What's in your heart? Is it wholeheartedness? Is it integrity? Is it singleness of purpose? Is it that there's no duplicity in you? Do you have a heart that is passionate and devoted to the things of Christ and not enamored by the things of this world? What's in your heart? In fact, let me ask this question. Would it be awkward in any way? Some people don't like their their work life or their friend life and their family life and their church life. Some people don't like it when those things intersect and there's a reason for that. Because it would be awkward, perhaps, for some to have your coworkers, your friends, the people you're in small group with, your family, to have them all together in one room where the topic is you. They're talking about you. Let's get everybody in all of the different spheres of your life. Let's get them all together and let's have a conversation about you. Would it be potentially awkward... Because each of these groups of people might know just a different aspect of who you are, might see different aspects of your heart, and that reveals maybe some duplicity that's there. That you don't have what the text talks about here. You don't have a true heart. In fact, there is a time when this very thing happens. Where your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors and, and the church people and your family, there is a time when they all get together and they talk about you. It's at your funeral. I just did a funeral on Friday. But when you go to funerals and you hear the eulogies, I just wonder how many people are sitting there going, I never knew that about that guy, or that isn't my experience of him. 
Uh, thankfully, the funeral I went to on Friday, there were two tributes, and both of them seemed to resonate with everybody that was there. That this man, who was pretty quiet and pretty private, was pretty consistent in the way he lived his life in front of everyone, and passionate about Jesus. But when each eulogy is being given at a funeral, are the mourners saying, yep, that's the guy I knew. The workers, uh, his co-workers are hearing his family members speak and they're going, yep, that guy was obviously the same guy at home that he is at work. That the church people are hearing what the family's saying and they're saying, yep, that's the same guy I knew. He was consistent. He had a true heart. Because if you have a true heart, you're going to be consistent in every relationship. And, and more critically, here, you can draw near to God. It's critical to having this unwavering confidence. Here's second. We will also have a clean conscience. A clean conscience. We're not burdened by, you know, the big three, guilt, fear, shame. We're not burdened by guilt, fear, or shame. The past is the past, and we, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we've moved on. We've moved on. That's not to say that sometimes there aren't still lingering consequences of decisions we made in the past. We can be forgiven for something and still face consequences. It doesn't mean there isn't still scar tissue, that I still don't think about it, that I still don't maybe have some regrets about some decisions I made in the past. All of that can still be there, but I can still be under the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and know that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me of all my sin. So I don't bear the guilt of it, I don't bear the shame of it, and I'm not fearful that I'm going to be found out because I understand that Jesus Christ gave his life for me, that he took my guilt, he took my shame, and he removed the fear. Jesus, in fact, chapter, if you go back to Hebrews 9.26, you can just glance back there, Hebrews 9.26, Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He put it away. And the whole notion of, you know, some people, sometimes people say, you know, I just can't forgive myself. What we really mean by that when we say that I can't forgive myself is I haven't let Jesus put it away. It's not so much that I need to forgive myself. I just need to put the sin away. I need to let Jesus have it because he sacrificed himself for it. Again, if your conscience is not clear, it's either because A, you currently have some unconfessed sin in your life that you're not willing to deal with, or B, maybe you're just a newer believer and you've not yet fully understood the completeness of the cleansing that comes, verse 19 says, by the blood of Jesus. And I would want for you to understand the completeness of that. Here's a third, evidence of purity. This is an outward expression of our faith. This is the content of our lives, what's inside of me, flowing out so others can see it. It's not merely compliance to religious rules. A lot of people make that mistake. But it's the evidence of a truly transformed life. It is bodies, this is what the text says here, it is bodies washed with pure water, verse 22. Outward obedience begins with the very first command that God gives us, in fact, to become Christians. There's kind of an allusion to it here in the passage about our bodies washed with pure water. We are commanded, after having become followers of Jesus Christ, to be baptized. 
Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and from there, from that moment, I've become a follower of Christ. I've been baptized as a testimony to that. Okay, we're not gathering for baptisms right now, but listen, obey the scriptures. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, get some other believers with you and, and, and get baptized in a pool at the beach, at the lake or wherever. Get baptized as a testimony to your faith in Jesus Christ. Obey the Lord in this. Don't wait around for the church to kind of figure out what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. And from there, okay, once we've obeyed that first and most basic thing, from there we seek to live a life of obedience, showing an outward transformation that reflects the inward reality of our conversion to Jesus Christ. And that's the issue for some. Maybe you are here and you have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ. Unwavering confidence is not possible for you because you have not yet been converted. You've not yet become a follower of Jesus Christ. The, the confidence is, is calling on you, in fact, to have a firm grip on your profession of faith. You see that next? Calling on you to have a firm grip on your profession of faith in Christ. Notice verse 23, the confession of our hope is something that begins with the initial decision we made to follow Christ, and that confession of hope continues onward into the uh, totality of your life for the rest of your life. In fact, the last few chapters of the book of Hebrews pound away at religiosity. It isn't enough to be associated with a church. It isn't enough to be associated with a group of believers. It isn't enough to perform certain religious rites and rituals. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You have to confess that He is your only hope. You have to confess your sins and have the forgiveness that He offers applied to your life. You have to say that your only hope is in Jesus Christ, and this must be, notice, here's the phrase we've been working on throughout this message, it must be without wavering. There must be complete confidence in that moment that you were saved, when you first professed Him. We would describe our church as an evangelical church, and I recognize that using that word is risky because it has been so uh, maligned, especially south of the border, and the concepts that people have of what an evangelical is and how it has been so uh, politicized. And we would lament the fact that it's been politicized in that way. It is a word that emanates out of the Scriptures, and it is, in its simplest terms, it points us to the gospel. It points us to the good news about Jesus Christ. And we would see ourselves as evangelicals in the sense that we preach the gospel. We believe in conversion. In other words, I um, was once dead in my sins, and then I convert, I change, okay, into someone who is now forgiven of their sins. There's a moment of time where I realize that Jesus Christ uh, needs to be received and his offer of forgiveness received. And um, maybe we would say it this way, uh, there, that you're not saved until you get saved. That's what an evangelical is. We're preaching a gospel where we say you are not saved until you get saved. 
And so no one defaults into this. No one is automatically saved. It is about a conscious, personal decision to follow Jesus Christ and is a primary tenet of what we believe in practice. No one becomes a Christian because of religious rites or rituals. So the question is, if you don't have an unwavering confidence, it might be because you don't know Jesus yet. So the question is, will you come to faith in Jesus Christ now? Will you turn your life over to him? Do you know when you were saved? Do you know when you started your journey of faith? Maybe you're thinking back on, like, I'm not sure I ever really made the decision, but I've kind of attached myself to the church, but I don't think I have that moment where I I actually said, I believe, I have hope in Christ. See, it's hard to have an unwavering confidence when you're not even confident about the day you came to faith in Christ. In fact, that's going to set us up for considerable considerable wavering and, and doubting. But when we have a firm grasp on the confession of our hope, our confidence will be unwavering. And, notice this, it will compel us to stir it up in one another. It will compel us to stir it up, to stir all of these things up in one another. I was thinking about this um, old English poem, and this will be for all the English lit nerds out there. Um, John Donne said this, he wrote this, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. You can see the point there, but I'm, I'm appalled at how little we grasp the nature of the church being something that we do together, that it's one body we should be appalled at how easily we have become such devotees of personal autonomy where we believe that each of us as individuals are indeed entirely independent, that we are an island. All those centuries ago, John Donne speaking right in to the contemporary situation, we are not islands. We're the continent. We're part of the continent, part of the main that we're not free to do just what we want to as Christ followers. Of all people, Christ followers, Christians should understand this. But instead, we've been so influenced by Enlightenment thinking, we have so bought into the Western philosophy and way of life, it has poisoned our souls and it has, it has misplaced our understanding of what it means to be community, family, So as Christians, what happens? We join and leave churches at our whim. We pick and choose what we want to believe in practice. We drop in and out of serving. We give assent to the authority of the elders until they challenge us directly. We attend worship when it is convenient. We give when it fits into the budget. Because we're the measure of these things. We're an island We've built a little bridge across the continent, but we want it to be clear that we're still an island. But that's not at all what the Scriptures teach us. When we actually get it right and truly understand the nature of the church, we willingly fall under the biblical mandate to give ourselves sacrificially to one another. When we look at verse 24, we're to think about how to stir up one another, stir up one another. That word stir up, it's a pretty powerful word. 
The root form of it means to actually have a severe argument or intense difference of opinion. We're stirring something up that I'm trying to stimulate change and motivation. I want to provoke something. That's what it means to stir up. I want to provoke something in you. It even carries the idea of irritating you or prodding you. For example, with a cattle prod, the cow may disagree about which direction it should be going, and thus some stimulus is given, a a prod is given, a little electric charge to remind the cow which direction the cow ought to be going. And so I'm looking for ways, if we take the root definition of that, what the preacher in Hebrews is saying is, I want to uh, prod you in a certain direction. I want to provoke you to do certain things. I I want to poke you. Notice, not for bad things, not for evil intent, not just to get you going in a certain direction, but I want to poke, prod, and provoke you to love and good works. What can I do to help you love more, to help you do more good works? What can you do to poke, prod, and provoke me to love more? to do more good works. We've broken it down at Harvest this way. Every Christian should be committed to three things. First of all, we ought to be committed to worshiping Christ together. That doesn't change, by the way, in a pandemic, and you need to be affirmed for being on this live stream today, and those of you who are going to watch this on demand later, for being a relentless and regular and, and, and devoted to this time together. Those who really wanted to be here in person, we appreciate so much your heart for that, that you wanted to be here to be a part of worship together. That's stirring one another up. That's poking, prodding, and provoking one another to love and good works because we're worshiping Christ together. It doesn't change because of a pandemic. Verse 25 now, it says, we have to spend time together. We have to spend time together. That seems pretty clear to me. If you're a believer and therefore part of the church, you should not be, look at the phrase in the text, you should not be neglecting to meet together. You should not be neglecting to meet together. And when we, when we do neglect that, That's an indication we don't understand something about what it means to be the body of Christ. The idea of not neglecting is not, oh, you know what, this particular week I couldn't make it because of some legit reason. That's not what it's talking about. He's really addressing the idea of you're abandoning the church. You're abandoning it with the purpose of abandoning it. Like you want to actually go away. I had a great discussion as part of a of a symposium on ecclesiology, the study of the church. We aired a few weeks ago with my former seminary and and college that I went to with some professors, other pastors. We talked about this, and one of the professors just pounded this point. This command here, this injunction toward us, is about people who are abandoning for the sake of abandoning. This is not the one-off I had to miss, but the regular pattern of our life should be, I want to be with God's people. I'm not intentionally setting this aside, but I'm intentionally deciding to be with God's people. I'm not going to neglect. I'm not going to neglect to meet together. I'm not going to abandon the church. 
And you finally get this when you stop being self-centered and you start thinking of others and you understand that you attend worship, you go to your small group in part for yourself and in part for the benefit of others. And I I think how often we get this wrong, that we've become so consumer-minded about church, about small groups, about ministry. It's how does this feed me? How does this serve me? How do I feel about it? How does it make me feel? Is it satisfying? And when, when a particular church doesn't meet the need, we go on to a different one. When a particular small group isn't a thing, we go and find a different one. Or we bail on it altogether. That's abandonment. That's Hebrews 10.25. That's neglecting to meet together. So we do it not only for our own benefits, but for the benefit of others. And I want you to understand this. When you miss worship for no particular reason, you're cheating yourself for sure but you're also neglecting your responsibility to everyone else in the room. And it doesn't matter if the room is a Zoom room. It doesn't matter if it's a live stream. If you're not part of what's happening this week, you're missing out on something that's of benefit to yourself, but also all of these different households gathering together in this way is an encouragement to everyone else. And that's the point of what the preacher is saying here. We think that maybe this is just a 21st century problem, but apparently this was a problem in the first century because the preacher says here, we should not be neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I mean, just barely years after the resurrection of Jesus, already there are some people who are not getting together to worship. It it was a problem then, and it's a problem now. As people increasingly see participation in worship as optional and allow themselves to believe that occasional attendance is acceptable, and how much easier that is now that we're on live stream and not actually able as as easily to see one another and keep account to one another for these things. And by the way, he's not just saying this in order that some grand church can be built and some pastor can brag in these things. The point is right here. It's, order, it's in order to be encouraging one another. That word encouraging, the Greek word parakletos, it means to come alongside, that I'm going to come alongside you, that we're going to walk this together and we're going to be a comfort to one another, an encouragement to one another, and a support to one another all the way along the way. This is the whole idea of doing life together. We actually need to be together in these days, as we face the challenges we're facing, we need to be together in these days, online, as best we can. In Zoom rooms, meeting on patios and in backyards, always being careful to physical distance. I know it's not perfect. I know it's not great. I know we can't hug. I get it. But we need this. We need to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together because we need to be encouraging one another. I need to do what I can given the extra challenges to stir up these things in you and I need you to stir these things up in me. Worship Christ, and how about this one, walk with Christ. This is really the essence of doing life together. Your personal walk with Christ requires you to be practicing the spiritual disciplines, and 
And, and, and what are your uh, personal disciplines? How are they going in terms of reading of the Word in these days and prayer and worship of the Lord? Have you let them uh, slip in these days? So that's on the personal side. My personal walk with Christ is certainly something I need to be cultivating, but also I'm, I'm expected to be walking with others, doing life together. We do that primarily here at Harvest in small groups. And yes, everything is harder these days, but you can still join a small group. People are still joining small groups these days. The fact that it's harder is all the more reason for us to dig deep, work toward these things. The walk we're talking about, yes, in these days has become an uphill slog in the heat of summer, but we can't stop now. We have to keep pushing forward step by step with Jesus and with each other. We need to get together so that we can ask each other the tough question, and you know what the tough question is. The tough question is, how are you doing? And we use it so flippantly with one another because we say, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? And, and really all we want when we ask the question, because it's really just a nicety, we really just want the person to say, oh, I'm good, I'm fine, you know? But, but, but the question, if we really ask it and pause for the answer, wait for it and want the answer, hey, really, how are you doing? How's your marriage? How are the kids? How's work been? How's the job search been? Is the money okay? How's your health? How's your mental health? I mean, really asking the question and then leaning in to hear the answer. You ask someone how they're doing and you actually mean it. That, it demonstrates love. That is encouraging on its face. That's stirring up one another to love. And good works. We have to ask the questions. And I knew, to, knew that, you know, at the beginning of, of this lockdown, I knew that I needed some support like that from some peers, some uh, other men who were in lead pastor roles. And so early on in the lockdown, I, I got a few of my friends together in Zoom rooms every week, and we met and we just shared where our uh, where our church was at that point, where we were at, what we were struggling with, what we needed in prayer, and then we would just every Thursday we just spend time in prayer together because we needed that. The early church understood that it needed that, and in that wonderful description of the church in Acts chapter two, right at the very end, we have. The church modeling what ought to be true of us, day by day, attending the temple together. That's the, that's the large group gathering of the church. That's the Sunday morning gathering, if you will, okay? And, and right now, that's live streamed. So day by day, attending the temple, day by day, okay? In this case, once a week, coming together in the live stream all together. And then, secondly, breaking bread in their homes. That's small groups. That's getting together. You might not be able to go in someone else's home, but you can go to their backyard. You can meet them on a patio. You can meet in a park. This is about worship and fellowship and and the Lord's table in small groups and sharing uh, the remembrance of the Lord with one another. We need this. God set it up this way, knowing as creator that we need this kind of fellowship and community and relationship. Walk with Christ.
walk with Christ together. And then uh, finally work for Christ together. Every believer finding a place of service according to their spiritual gifts. And just a few weeks from now, in August, we're going to do a series called uh, Not So Mysterious After All. And it's uh, about the fruit of the Spirit and the uh, gifts of the Spirit. We're going to look at all of that over six weeks. And we want to tangibly show the love of Christ through the use of our spiritual gifts in order to build up the body. This loving care and selfless service towards one another is the means by which the world will know that we are his followers. That's John 13, 35. As followers of Christ, we should not have any fear. As followers of Christ, we ought to be pressing forward to serve in this world despite, listen now, not not being careless, not being careless, but still People are dying and going to hell all around us. They don't have Jesus Christ. They're lost in this world. And we have the words of life. And we cannot be cowering in our homes, not employing our spiritual gifts, not using the energies and talents and resources that God has given to us, just hoarding those things and holding on to those things out of fear. world needs us and it needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that so many of you are still serving as you're able, still leading, still pouring out for others. When I heard word um, that uh, this man in our church, longtime member, had passed, it's up in Aurelia, and um, I, made, I, made, I sent one text, I sent one email, and Pastor Dwayne contacted one small group leader. And we had this care net put over this couple as, as he was dying. And then a care net put over uh, the widow as she grieves. And I love that people just stepped up into the gap and are available to care for her right up in that neighborhood. I love that there are people right now who are delivering food for the food bank or serving sorting food inside the food bank. I love that some of you are making meals in our partnership with the Comfort Inn and and helping those who are homeless who are staying there right now uh, through the Busby Center. I love those of you who are working with pregnant moms because during a pandemic, pregnancies still continue and babies are still born and some moms and, and even dads need some help with that. And I love that through Envisage, many of you are still helping. So many other ways that you're serving and caring. I think about the servants who have come for the last 17 weeks here to, to provide this live stream. We need to thank God for those who have such eagerness to serve, such love demonstrated, because that is the essence of work for Christ. So that's the passage, let's recap it now with one long sentence that reflects this outline. Only faith in Christ fills you with an unwavering confidence that rests on all that he has done for you, allowing you to draw near without reservation, having a sincere heart, a clean conscience, and evidence of purity, calling on you, to have a firm grip on your profession of faith in Him and compelling you to stir it up in one another, to worship Christ together, 
to walk with Christ together and to work for Christ together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for once again speaking to us, for challenging us through your word, for your Holy Spirit's work in our lives to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. God, we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful at a time when the world is more aware of its lostness, more gripped by fear and uncertainty, and more opportunities are presenting themselves for us to to speak the gospel, to share the love of Christ, to serve those who are struggling. God, show us every opportunity and, and stir in us through your Holy Spirit to encourage one another, to build up the church and to reach this world with the message of Jesus Christ. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for your many, many kindnesses toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name.